Well, I get to be by the fire. You get to sit on hard seats that are not only hard and uncomfortable, but cold. I didn't realize that till just now. I was sitting right there. Oh, wow. Kids better not get up. Keep those things warm. So don't get up and leave. No, I'm just kidding. Um, with that in mind, it's my goal to stay and talk as long as I can. Because I've got tea and the fire, so I'm good. And we're going to see who here is worthy of, you know, being closer to God by, all right, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, in all seriousness, though, uh, we are trying to make this a little more condensed tonight. You'll notice worship was a little shorter. And so um, I'm going to go through our passage. Fortunately, we got one chapter tonight because that's all that's left of John. And then um, then we will do uh, communion as usual, a song, and then we'll do one more song at the end for those that aren't dead yet you know they they can stay for that last song so if you guys will let's go to john chapter 21 john 21 it's the last chapter in john we've been looking now for this is the 12th week of the gospel of john the theme live eternally present tense not you're gonna live eternally it's live now eternally and into the future so as we've done each week i'm going to read to you the summary of why we're looking at live eternally from the insert from the excerpt in the bulletin it says that john writes his gospel quote so that you may believe that jesus is the christ the son of god and that by believing you may have life in his name End quote. This life is Zoe in Greek. Z-O-E. Zoe. It differs from bios, biological life. Zoe is God's life. The kind of life that lives forever. It never decays. Though originally assumed to be limited to heaven, John dares us to find Zoe in Jesus today. This is the life God wants us to live right now. A piece of himself within us. A bit of heaven on earth before Jesus returns to the earth. Eternal life is not merely life after death, but also life before death. And that is the life that John is inviting us to live in this gospel through Jesus as he uses that word Zoe when you see the word life in his gospel usually connected with the word eternal so in other words the Zoe life of God eternal life generally in your Bible it's not just longevity of life it's also depth and quality right not just quantity in the sense that it goes on forever and ever, but quality in the sense of it's the kind of life that you were meant to experience when God created us in the Garden of Eden. It's the kind of life we forfeited that was divorced, heaven divorced from earth in the sin and fall of man. And so in John's vision, as he's reflected upon the life of Jesus that he followed, 60 years later, he presents for us... His vision of Jesus as the leader of God's new creation. Because the present creation is getting old and it's wearing away. It's made out of biological, bios life. And it's decaying. 
And we see its corruption and its mar, the way that it's marred. And so in, John's presenting for us a Jesus who comes with the Zoe of God, with the eternal, abundant, deep, long-lasting life of God. And he comes, and to mimic Genesis 1, he opens the gospel in John 1, 1 by saying, In the beginning. It's a new creation. And as God created the heavens and the earth with his word, so Jesus comes and is called the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And to follow the, the continuing the theme in Genesis, we see that Genesis begins with darkness. And God's first word is, let there be light. And then John goes on to say that Jesus was the light, and the light came into the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And so we have at the very beginning, Jesus is our new creation. And to continue that theme, John tells us that he selects, out of all the miracles Jesus did, he has made a selection of seven to show us who Jesus is. Seven, to mimic the seven days of creation. So each time Jesus does one of these miracles, John calls them a sign. Because this miracle is that signpost that's pointing to the new creation. And it's as if you're wondering, what does the Zoe life of God, what does his new creation look like? Well, John's saying, look at the miracles Jesus is doing. So to recap, since we're at the end and this is our last shot... The first sign was Jesus turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And it wasn't just, oh, that's nice, you made water into wine, that's really powerful of you. But remember we saw that it was 120 or so gallons of wine, which was over and above what anybody needed for the wedding. The point is is that Jesus and the new creation not only provides the best of drinks for his people... This is not a theological comment about alcohol, by the way. But it also is an unlimited supply of what in that culture was the best of drinks for people. It's just an over-the-top abundance. The second sign heals that leader's son from a distance just by saying, Hey, go and check out your son. He is made well. The third sign we saw in chapter 5. Jesus visits the skid row of Jerusalem. And there he finds an invalid who has been unable to move for 38 years. And he wants desperately to get to the waters of healing. But every time that there's a chance, he's outraced by everybody else. And he, the poor guy just needs to know that he's worth somebody's love. Because nobody wants to help him. And Jesus heals him there. And we see that in the new creation. God is our validation. I don't have to validate myself and be competitive with you and you against me. The fourth sign, we see Jesus walking on water. I'm sorry, feeding the 5,000 in chapter 6. That Jesus is our everlasting bread of life, giving himself to us over and over. We never hunger, we never lack with him in the new creation. Sign 5, Jesus walks on water. He's the master. He's the authority over even the sea, which in the Jewish mind was a source of evil. He can even trample over the sea in the new creation that will be mastered by Jesus. Then in the sixth sign, Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Amazing. 
of all the signs you did, this has to be the best to, so far. Amen. This isn't restoration of sight. Let me give you something you lost. This is the creation of eyeballs that were not there. Just to show, yeah, new creation, it can bring things out of nothing. It can bring it into existence. And God can do that in our lives. And that was uh, just by, from feedback. A lot of you really like that message in John 9. So if you haven't been around, get that one. If you're looking for recommendations. Just according to the jury. And then sign number seven is in John 11 when he raises Lazarus from the dead, which is just another step up. So it got climatic towards the end. Then Jesus has the seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, the life. I am the true vine. I am the shepherd. I am the door. All of those I am statements... Seven, again, mimicking creation. So we see that Jesus has come to bring the new creation. And then last week we got the perfect glimpse of that. When he comes out of the tomb of death, death being the mark of the old creation, death reigns this present creation. But he comes out of death, out of the tomb, and it walks into, of all places, a garden. Because in Jesus, the Garden of Eden has returned. And we can find it and visit it in Him today. And that's what He's going to bring everything to. It's climatic end, the way everything was supposed to be. And now we're in chapter 21, which is very clearly a postscript. What I mean is, you'll notice at the end of chapter 20, He's clearly summing up the Gospel. I wrote this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing... You may have Zoe in his name. Well, it's widely agreed, um, a lot of people I read, that this chapter 21 was written by John a little bit later. Sort of as a, you know what, I have one more thing to say. <laughs> so it's a little extra credit for those that stay through the credits of a movie. Sometimes you get that hidden scene. Or back when CDs were a thing, you have the hidden track. Anybody remember the hidden tracks at the end of your album? It's kind of like that. So here we go, John 21. After Jesus revealed himself again to uh, uh, again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, so he's talking to the other six that were with him. I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night they caught nothing. So John introduces this to us and says, I'm going to tell you about the third time Jesus revealed himself to his disciples. We saw the other two last week, both in that room with the door locked in Jerusalem, right? Their disciples are hiding from the Jewish authorities. Jesus just appears in their midst and says, peace to you. And both times were Sundays. The first time he appeared to them was Sunday evening. And so they are there, they see him, and of course Jerusalem's the exciting place. That's where all of the big climatic spiritual moments happened, right? The cross, Jesus died for our sins in Jerusalem. He rose from the dead in Jerusalem. He appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem. All of that was super exciting. But now all of that has worn off a bit. 
been a few weeks now. They're back home in Galilee, where they've grown up, where their jobs were. And one can almost wonder, as life goes back to the mundane, back to the normal, back to the Monday through Friday grind and try to live for the weekends, and they're always too short kind of living, it can always begin to feel like the super magical moments we've had with God are somehow like, oh, that was just sort of like a thing, but this is back to real life. And those moments can almost fade away, can't they? Feel like they're just, I kind of remember that. And so here are the disciples back in the mundaneness of life. And Peter, of course, they're hungry. They got to work. So as is their trade, they go fishing. Now, some people say that they shouldn't have gone fishing, that this is backsliding. I'm a much more practical person. So I think that they just need, Jesus hasn't shown up or anything. They're waiting for him. They're like, we don't know what to do. We got to eat. And it's better to do something than nothing, isn't it? So they're going to go fishing. And as you're going to see, that's where Jesus is going to meet them. So just as day was breaking, it was very normal to fish during night, by the way, because you could sell your catch in the morning at the market. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so it still is today. The resurrected Jesus can be hard to identify. And many still are not even sure that the resurrection happened. And today, Christians are trying to look for Jesus in these big, epic experiences. But sometimes, he's in the gardener. Like Mary, in the garden, thought he was the gardener. He's not some, wow, there he is, it's Jesus, everybody bow down. Sometimes it takes eyes to see. And here, he's just on the shore, maybe there's other people on the shore, he just looks like another person, and they don't recognize it's Jesus. And Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. Go starboard and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved Remember John, therefore said to Peter, Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, don't ask, for he was fit for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards off. And when they got on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place. Doesn't that sound nice? I could just, I could totally imagine what it felt like. If I could, I would trade with you guys. I would. There was a charcoal fire in place. Just meditate on that for a minute. (laughs) With fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. Interesting, isn't it? Bring the fish you just caught. Jesus already got fish there. He doesn't need their fish. But he always wants our contribution. He loves to work with us. 
Uh, so Simon Peter went aboard. Remember, Peter was already on shore. He jumped out and swam. And he's there out of the disciples. The disciples get there. And Jesus like, go get the fish. And so Peter's like, just like, yeah, I don't need you guys. It took all of you to bring the fish in. He goes on his own and hauls these fish in on his own. Peter's just like macho man in this whole episode. <laughs> One has to wonder, by the way, when we see this kind of activity in people that just want to be the guy that does everything or the woman who knows everything, whatever it is. What is driving that kind of behavior? Now, sometimes we have people with great hearts who genuinely just want to be in everybody's space to help everybody with everything. But sometimes there's also another motive in that. And one has to wonder... What is going on in Peter's heart and mind as he sees the Lord now before him, knowing full well what had happened the night he was crucified when he denied him three times and has felt a rotten, filthy, unworthy disciple ever since. And here he is. Is he perhaps feeling like he's got to be the guy for the rest of the guys? I've got to somehow make up my failures and prove that I'm a leader. And so he goes and hauls the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. I just have to share the insight. Um, One commentator mentioned, we have about as many denominations as that, 153 Christian denominations. And yet, this net's not torn. Why can we not all be in the same net? And realize that it's not going to tear. And think about how limiting it is when we think that our church is the church. We've got it right. Don't trust those other phonies down the street or those Pentecostals over there. Like, when we get in that mentality, you're shrinking this net down to one little fish. And you're pulling it on shore. You're like, everybody, Jesus does miracles. And you're like, I have a goldfish in my room. Like, what's so cool about that? And we have to wonder, is, is God's truth big enough to incorporate other denominations and versions of worship? Or is it so small that your church is the one in the way? So, Jesus said to them, verse 12, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. But yet, there's sort of that you just want to know that you know, right? And this is life. This is Christian life. This side of the new creation. We will never feel 100% positive about everything. Get used to it. It's okay. They just want that affirmation, but... And sometimes we just have to live with it. We just have to look at the evidence and say, I think, I think that this is the Lord. I think that he's in it. But you'll always still want to ask. And in verse 13, Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So Jesus, in the new creation he's bringing, he shows up even in the mundane places like Galilee, fishing trips, your job site, even when it's failing and you're not good at your job, like they haven't caught any fish. 
in the new creation that Jesus is bringing, it bursts into the mundaneness of this present creation. And we have to be willing to open our eyes to see that God's work today is not limited to church buildings, cathedrals, prayer meetings, Bible studies, Bible college classes. His work is happening all around us. And sometimes we're missing it because we're not quite ready for it unless we're at church. But here Jesus reveals himself to them. The first two times on Sunday, this time while they're at work. So, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You can imagine they've left the fire behind. The other disciples are eating. Maybe they're cleaning up. Jesus goes on a walk with Peter. Peter, step into my office. They go for a walk along the shore. And you can hear the tenseness and the silence. Imagine yourself as Peter. You're going with Jesus and you're thinking of everything you haven't done properly. And all you can hear for a while is the crunching of the pebbles under your feet. The gentle lapping of the water against the shore. And then Jesus asking you as he turns to you, Simon, son of John, Brandon James McCulloch, you know, like, well, this is serious when the full name is brought out. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And can you just see Peter just, they keep walking and there's more silence, more crunching, Maybe the sun is now beginning to finally warm things up. And he's pained by this, right? And he's, does he look at Jesus or does he look at the ground? And he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, you can imagine this time, it's already happened twice, Peter's maybe getting very uncomfortable, and now this time Jesus stops and turns to Peter, looks him in the eye, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter has to break eye contact. Because he's grieved. And maybe now that the third time it's been said, it hits him. I denied you three times. And Peter has to look down at his feet. And he says to him, Lord, maybe even still looking down, you know everything. You know that I love you. And I could see Jesus now at this point just puts his hands on Peter's shoulders And Peter looks up now. And Jesus just looks at him and says, Then feed my sheep. Peter, do you get it? I know you're upset and you feel hurt and the shame is rising to your face because of what you did. But I have a purpose for you, Peter. I want you to go feed my sheep. 
I have something for you to do. Peter, get your act together, in a sense. And I also love Peter's response by this time. Because at the dinner table, right before his death, you may remember that Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And Peter goes, you know what? I will die for you, Jesus. I love you that much. He's so confident in his love for Jesus. But this time, Peter has to just sort of surrender and say, you know, you know that I love you. Because I'm not sure how strong I am anymore. But you know, Lord. And so then Jesus has to say, 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk everywhere you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. He's renewing the same thing. Follow me, Peter. Just like the first time he called Peter to follow him, we know in Luke 5, there was a miraculous catch of fish. Well, Jesus is redoing all of this for Peter. Peter, just like the very beginning, just like I rose in a garden, I want to bring you back to the beginning. I want to restore fellowship with you. So I'm going to reenact the way you were originally called, and I'm going to once again ask you to follow me, and I'm going to reverse your three denials by asking you, to, giving you the chance to say you love me three times. Beautiful restoration. Oh, but Peter, you're also going to be more like me than you ever thought. You're going to die for me. And as church tradition says, that Peter was crucified upside down, asking to be done upside down so that he didn't die just like Jesus. And that's what Jesus was forced saying there. You're going to stretch out your hands, and you're going to glorify God through that death. But Peter's still struggling. He turned and saw, in verse 20, the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. So John is like a few yards back eavesdropping on this whole thing, right? Peter turns and looks at him. And he says, Lord, uh, oh, this is the disciple who asked, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? So we're just getting oriented here. 21, Peter saw him and said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? You know, you got to restore me. And now I'm going to, you know, you're foretelling I'm going to die for you. What about this guy? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he should remain until I come, what is that to you? Peter, you follow me. And so often I get caught up, if you're like me, in everybody else's thing that they're doing for God and just like, why am I not gifted like that? Why do I only have like, I'm a one trick pony. Why can I only do one thing? And this guy over here is doing the trapeze thing in the circus and he's balancing uh, those juggling pins on his nose and he can make a lion jump through a hoop. He's like, he can do everything. And all I can do is follow Jesus. 
But Jesus' words here are so encouraging. And he's saying, don't compare yourself to the other Christians around you. I have brought them through their own things. You're going through your own things. We're all at different places. And I'm not at the end of time going to stack you all up and say, well, Greg Laurie saved X many people. And Pastor Brandon, two last year. And, you know, and he's not going to like rank us all up there and say, well, well done, Greg Laurie, Pastor Brandon, I expected more of you. And, you know, it's not going to be like that. God has given us our parents. He's given us our education. He's given us where we live. He's given us our giftings. He's given us our relationships. And all of these things are coming together to give us our unique environment to serve Jesus in, in ways that only I can serve Jesus in. We must learn to grow and flourish where we're planted. To let the Zoe life of God so fill us, fill our net to overflowing so that it comes and spills onto other people. That's all God asks of you to do. It's to be filled with His life wherever you are so that others can catch it. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this, this disciple is not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him, John's like clarifying his own reputation here. Jesus did not say to him uh, that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I die, what is that to you? So apparently, you know, rumors went abroad. Do we live on a mountain that has rumors or what, huh? Man. A friend shared with me some rumors the other day. I was, what? How do people actually believe these things? Be careful, brothers and sisters. The rumor mill up here is vicious. It's so small up here. And listen, if it sounds unbelievable, it probably is unbelievable. Instead, though, we're so quick to think, wow, did you hear about this? I can't believe it. I know. I've just learned, go ask the person if it's true. It settles a lot. But if we're like Peter and we've messed up and the insecurity and the shame is rising up in our lives, why do we spread rumors and listen to them? Because for once people are looking at me and they're listening to my words and it makes me feel good about myself and I've been otherwise quite a failure. It's a very cheap way to find restoration in your life. Well, this is the disciple, 24, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So John's like, I wrote this, and it's true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. My reply to that is it depends on who's writing them. <laughs> um, and this is obviously hyperbole. It's an exaggeration. But if you have Charles Spurgeon writing, if anybody's read his stuff, you know that the guy is long-winded. So yes, it would take two planets to full, hold Jesus' works. But if it's uh, somebody else writing, it might be a lot smaller. Alright, but here's the thing. Before we go to communion... Just as we were worshiping, I just, I kind of just felt this, like, illustration forming for, for Peter and John. 
And by the way, there's been this, this competition between Peter and John the whole time, right? You might have noticed, we noticed it last week, big time, but it's been developing. In chapter 13 at the dinner table, Peter wants to know who's going to betray Jesus. But rather than Peter asking Jesus, hey, who's going to betray you? Peter has to secretly sign to John, who's right next to Jesus, hey, ask Jesus, who's going to betray you? And we see that every time John and Peter are together in this gospel, John is always one step above Peter. So John is the secret informant. Peter has to go through John. John, I'm sure, is loving that as he writes. In chapter 18, when Jesus is taken to the high priest's house, it's um, John, it says, can get in because he knew the high priest. But Peter could only get in when John invited him in. And once again, when they're together, John one-ups Peter. Then we saw at the tomb last week. John told us three times, I outran Peter to the tomb. In this episode here, um, it was John who recognized Jesus on the shore, not Peter. Peter responded, but John saw Jesus first. And now here, when Jesus is um, asking Peter, do you love me? It is... When Peter turns around, it says that John is following already. He's following Jesus. And what is Jesus' response to Peter? It's, you follow me. Like John is already doing. Don't worry about John. He's following me. You start doing what John's doing and follow me. So these five times we see John one-upping Peter. The score is 5-0. Peter's being shut out. And of course he's frustrated. What about him? I've had it, you know? <laughs> Why is this guy always around? <sighs> and so this is where tonight, I think we have a good illustration of what it feels like to be Peter. To not be certain about the love of God for you is what we feel like right now in this cold. And think about it, as Peter was seeking to warm himself by a fire, was when he denied Jesus three times. He was seeking warmth, he was seeking the comfort and the embrace of love somewhere, and because Jesus now became a threat to Jerusalem, he was unsure if he wanted to associate himself with the threat and preferred to be embraced by those at the fire. And we go through life wanting so badly to have our hearts thawed, to not let them be frozen in the cold, and to be closer to the fire where we can feel the warmth and that's what God's love is to us is it's a warming agent and it enables us to move and it frees us from our rigidness and our coldness and Peter we see there's just there's stuff going on in him he's got to be dragging the fish he's got to be jumping in the water I got to be first to Jesus what about John he's so insecure this whole time but it seems that what begins to warm Peter up because clearly he gets his act together You'll, we know that from our study in Acts. What, what warms Peter up, it seems to me, is the constant presence, rather gradually, but the constant presence of John, the disciple. Peter would not have seen Jesus, but it was the disciple whom Jesus loved 
the disciple who knew I am loved by Jesus. So I'm going to call myself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It was that disciple who saw Jesus in the mundane, in the cold, and in the place where the rest are doubting and unsure. Love gives us eyes to see and arms to embrace because love warms us up. Whereas Peter is in the cold and in the dark and shame has caused him to live in his own prison and he's tightening his life up like this. And he feels like he has to do something to break himself out of it. And then it's when Jesus comes and he knows where Peter's at. He says, Peter, do you love me? It marvel, I marvel at the fact that Jesus didn't show up and say, Peter, I need you to hear one thing. I love you. Because isn't that what Peter needs to hear? I betrayed you, Lord. Do you love me still? But you know what happens? Is Jesus appeared where they weren't expecting him. And that should tell Peter that he loves him. And John pointed that out for Peter. Look, there he is, the Lord. It's the Lord, he's here. He loves us. Peter, you know I love you. Why do you think, I didn't have to come back. I didn't have to come visit you at your miserable failing night at your job. But I did. No, Peter, what you need more than anything is for you to tell me that you know that I know. I hope that didn't confuse anyone. (laughs) Notice Peter's response. Jesus doesn't say, I love you, Peter. Do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. No, Jesus just simply asks, do you love me? And Peter says, not, you bet. He's less secure. He says, you know that I love you. And it's in these cold and uncomfortable seasons of failure that we have to realize that even when we are unsure, God is always sure. And we have to come to that place, if it takes three times, it takes three times, to confess that He knows, even when I am less sure about myself. You know, Lord, that I love you. And to know that God knows that I love him is so much more empowering than to say, I do love you, God, because I know my heart. I know that I'm a liar. I know that I sometimes even, (laughs) I betray my love to him like Peter. I deny it over and over. And this, I love you, as we sing in worship, and it's good. But that's not as powerful as my saying, Lord, you know my heart, and you know that I love you, even though I fail and mess up. That you know is more comfort to me because it means I don't have to prove it to you. You already know it.